I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare anyone? Hi listeners, it's Courtney here. If you are listening to this episode after 2023, you might be wondering, who is this Corey Lee Smith host? When we started this podcast, I went by that stage name, Corey. I've chosen to leave my stage name and, as you know, I now go by Courtney. But before you enjoy past Elise and past Courtney's episodes in our back catalog, I wanted to clarify the name switch. Now that I've set that straight, I invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Hello listeners, this is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe Patreon will help us achieve. We've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis. Our bonus content so far includes Shakespeare Stuff We Loved This Month posts, where we share the Shakespeare-related products we are obsessing over. Not only that, but we already launched bonus episodes. One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and Early Modern Trans Studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much Podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content, like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, onto the episode. Welcome to another Shakespeare Anyone mini-episode. In these mini-episodes, 
we'll be exploring topics that are related to Shakespeare but aren't necessarily connected to whatever play we've been discussing. And they're many because, well, they're shorter than our other episodes. They're like quartos if the regular episodes are folio editions. In today's episode, we'll be talking about woodcuts and early modern publishing. Fun fact, this topic was selected by our Patreon patrons at the Gentry, Noble, and Royal Patron levels. Special thanks to Clocky McDowell, Kristen Harrett, Collective Action Comics Podcast, and Katie Smith. Pro tip, listeners. For this episode, you might want to get a device that allows you to search images of woodcuts. If you're listening on a smartphone, you're exactly where you need to be. And while we will discuss the printing press in this episode, we are focusing on the woodcut. We'll include a brief history of the printing press, but if you'd like to learn more about the printing process, go listen to our mini-episode about folios and quartos. A woodcut, quite literally, is a block of wood that, through the use of knives and other tools, is carved into in order to form a design or image on a wood surface. This image is transferred to paper and becomes an artistic print or book illustration. Printmakers in the early period would carve a design or image into the woodblock. The woodcut was then inked and printed onto paper, traditionally with a press. Now, some history. We're sure the history of the woodcut is more extensive than what a general internet search or your high school world history teacher provides. The widely taught history is that the woodcut was invented in China by the Han Dynasty before 220 BC and then boomed due to the invention of Gutenberg's movable type printing press after the 1450s. However, we at Shakespeare Anyone question the absoluteness of this claim. We say that because porcelain movable type was invented in the Song Dynasty in China in the 11th century, metal movable type in Korea by the 14th century, and metal movable type in China again by the late 15th century. In addition, some scholars note that print trade was brought to what's now Germany by Roma tribes when they immigrated from the Middle East in the 1410s. Ancient Egyptians block printed, Mesopotamians printed with cylinder seals, and going back even further, prehistoric artists used their hands as multiples in caves. We bring this up because printed imagery is dependent on a press, any form of press. So woodcuts may have predecessors we simply do not learn about because history skips the contributions of some regions to printing altogether. While Gutenberg may have perfected a form of movable type, he was not the father of movable type. But alas, while we would love to expand on this, we are an early modern England podcast and simply do not have the time. However, we did want to acknowledge this bias in Western history. And as an early modern English podcast, we must move on and discuss the influence of Gutenberg's printing press on early modern England. Johannes Gutenberg perfected a wood movable type printing press, like we said, in the 1450s, while he was living in Strasbourg. His most famous work is the two-volume, 1,200-page Gutenberg Bible, completed over three years, ending in 1455. But still, printing had not made it to England. English merchant and diplomat William Caxton, while on business in Cologne in the mid-1450s, observed a printing press, began printing himself, and then introduced England to the printing press upon his return in 1476. Now let's get back to woodcuts. 
English printers saw a push for the development of imagery to accompany text. Prior to the printing press and the movable type process, medieval scribes published elegantly designed manuscripts by hand. With the advent of movable type, printmakers didn't want to lose the intricate details of imagery and needed to find a method for printing images. Hence, woodcuts. Woodcuts allowed printers to mechanically mass-reproduce visual elements for a text. And the woodcut blocks themselves were quite durable. As we'll discuss later, due to the necessity for mass reproduction, the actual sustainability of the woodblock was quite useful for early modern printers. One single woodcut block could sustain a single printing for, say, one artist selling one single copy of their artwork in print, or it could sustain thousands of prints if the image was published in a popular book. So, woodcuts allowed for artists to print and sell their artwork in far greater quantities. Think mass production of modern prints. And they allowed for book publishers using the newly popularized movable type process to keep the visual elements of their publications, rather than just printing only text. But before we discuss the practical uses of woodcuts that would apply more broadly to Shakespeare in his time, let's do a very quick mini-dive into woodcuts as a form of fine art. There was an artistic shift that emerged out of the 1400s in woodcuts. That shift was the invention of a new oil-based ink that allowed for larger fields of black ink to be imprinted cleanly. Some engravers and artists took advantage of that innovation on woodcuts. One of the most famous examples of that was the German artist and engraver Albrecht Dürer, who lived during the late 1400s and early 1500s. Compared to previous woodcuts' dark line work that constructed images, Dürer added in a white line, which created a larger depth of space. According to master printer Phil Sanders, Dürer was a revolutionary who changed the medium of woodcut and printmaking. Rather than serving the woodcut's previously rudimentary purpose, woodcuts entered into society as a fine art, like drawing and painting. A great example of the intricacies of woodcuts can be found in Dürer's Meisterstische, or Master Engravings. While woodcuts could be palettes for fine art like we see with Dürer's work, woodcuts, in reality, were less likely to be used for that purpose. According to Shakespeare scholar and author James Knapp, this is partially due to the fact that the wood block material used to create a woodcut has its physical limitations. An artist usually cannot be as intricate with a woodcut in comparison to other materials because, with woodcuts, you can only cut to a certain thickness, or else the wood may break. In short, most artists were restrained by the wood block itself. So now let's take a look at some of the purposes for woodcuts in early modern England. Woodcuts in England were not really used for fine art. Instead, they were used commercially. Woodcut illustrations show up in a wide variety of publications, and they show up in many important texts of the time, some we have already covered. Given this, we can assume that Shakespeare would have been influenced by the many woodcut illustrations he would have encountered as a playwright living and working in London. One popular use for woodcuts was the broadside ballad. The broadside ballad was most prevalent during the Tudor, Jacobean, Regency, and Victorian periods in England. A broadside ballad is a sheet of paper printed on one side with a ballad, rhyme, news, and sometimes woodcut illustrations to accompany the text. Broadside ballads covered a wide scope of information, from religion to politics to current events to gossip and even, quote-unquote, fake news. But, like their name suggests, 
the traditional musical form of the ballad was the most popular. Many broadside ballads were accompanied by woodcut illustrations. Not every woodcut image was created for that particular ballad, but the illustration was typically related to the story or image. Think of internet memes, reproduced and adapted to fit the narration of the creator. Broadsides were sold by ballad hawkers on the streets who sang snippets of the song as an early modern preview. They were displayed decoratively in homes or in public spaces like alehouses. And at a time when paper was rather scarce, it was used and reused as scrap paper, food wrap, and even toilet paper. Broadside ballads can be compared to modern tabloids. Millions of broadside ballads were printed in this time, and thousands remain to this day. And, while broadside illustrations have been deemed inconsequential by scholars of the past, contemporary scholars and historians are using broadside ballads to discover more broadly the lives of early modern people. One example is in Queer Studies, where Dr. Simone Chess, among many others, are studying the iconography and visual vocabulary encoded in broadside ballad woodcuts for a signaling and advertising of queer and non-normative sexualities, sex practices, and gender formations. This work searches for meanings generated through repetitions of illustrations, what scholar Katie Cisnero calls, quote, an anthology of cultural knowledge that had its parts drawing upon and within each other, unquote. Again, an early modern meme. If you are interested in learning more about Dr. Chess's work on broadside ballads, head over to Dr. Chess's New York Comics and Picture Symposium's lecture, Broadside Ballad Woodcuts, Pre-Modern Visual Culture, Popular Media, and Queer Coding, on YouTube. Dr. Chess also partnered with UC Santa Barbara's English Broadside Ballad Archive to create a searchable online catalog to Diane Dugau's book, Warrior Women and Popular Balladry, 1650 to 1850. This genre of broadside ballads tells stories of women masquerading as men. Pamphlets had a similar purpose to broadside ballads, sometimes combining imagery with text to produce a narrative or perspective for readers. One example is from the sexist 1620 anonymous pamphlet Hic Mulier, translated from Latin, The Man Woman. Hic Mulier is accompanied by a title page woodcut depicting two women being dressed and styled in men's fashion by two men. Another example is in News from Scotland, printed in 1591, which we discussed in our Macbeth series, which contains a plethora of woodcuts depicting the North Berwick witchcraft court trial and scenes of the alleged Sabbaths. Woodcuts were also utilized in historical texts of the time. One of the most infamous textual sources that Shakespeare consulted and embellished when writing many of his plays, like Macbeth, King Lear, and Cymbeline, was Raphael Hollinshed's Chronicles of England, Scotland, and Ireland. Hollinshed's Chronicles, which we already covered in another mini-episode, so go back and listen if you haven't already, is a collective work detailing a comprehensive history of Britain. This source material, mostly retellings of legends and revisionist history, contains woodcuts likely illustrated by Marcus Gerarts the Elder, a Flemish etcher. Woodcuts from the 1577 publication include Cordelia Imprisoned and a Depiction of Her Death, an image titled The Prophecy of Three Women Supposing to be the Weird Sisters or Fairies, which depicts Macbeth and Banquo on horseback met by three women, alas, not bearded, and a piece titled The Archbishop of Canterbury's Preacheth from Edward II, Christopher Marlowe's source material for his play, Edward II. But in all transparency, we don't know how Marlowe used the chronicles. 
but we do hope to cover this not Shakespeare play in the future. And for some reason or another, the second edition of Holland Sheds saw a massive reduction in woodcuts from the 1577 publication to the 1587 edition. And by massive, we mean the 1577 edition has 1,026 woodcuts, while the 1587 has none. For some unknown reason, the publishers chose to eliminate woodcuts altogether. While that reason is greatly speculated amongst scholars and historians, it is too great a subject to excavate in this episode. We'll save that one for another day. As we've said, these woodcuts were a commercial art form, not a fine art form. Due to this, most woodcut artists were not credited for their work, and those identities are lost to history. The early modern mentality was that a woodcut was intended for mass production and interchangeable. If a specific image was popular or versatile, printers or printing houses might sell or exchange woodcut block images in order to add a more relevant image to its current production. Historians can learn a lot about the history of the woodcut by tracking it through history, like publications, locations, and conditions. For example, a woodcut might have been published in England with no crack, and later, say, in the Netherlands, with a crack. From this, we can determine that the woodcut started in England and somehow traveled to the Netherlands. But was the imagery depicted in a woodcut image an accurate depiction of early modern life? If we think back on the Holland Sheds Chronicle's woodcut depictions of Macbeth and the Weird Sisters, clearly that woodcut is an illustration of a legendary character and serves to tell a fictional story. However, historians can use woodcuts to learn about the early modern world. A woodcut depicting ancient Rome would still dress those figures in early modern clothing. From this, historians have a clear idea of what fashions were popular at the time the woodcut was designed. We even know a little bit about theatrical performance due to woodcuts, like the woodcut of comedian Will Kemp dancing the jig at the end of a tragedy, or the title page woodcut from Thomas Kidd's The Spanish Tragedy, depicting a scene from the play. These woodcuts tell us how actors were staged and dressed. Contemporary architecture, their building processes, and other technical details of early modern life can also be found in woodcuts for historians to study and extrapolate from. But, although woodcuts were popular during the early modern era, the Protestant Reformation of the 1500s inspired some general feelings of disapproval of woodcuts from the idolatry and image-despising Protestants. Remember, some took this to extremes and destroyed a lot of visual art, mostly in churches, through whitewashing walls, breaking stained glass windows, and destroying statues. According to James Knapp, this hostility led to skepticism of visual imagery in general by the mid-1500s. Overall, books contained far more illustrations in the beginning of the era, and by the 1580s, illustrations in books waned. However, depictions of monarchs and historical events were, according to Protestant England, always acceptable. With all of this, folks today may ask the question, why is an early modern woodcut as renowned in the art world as drawing or painting? For example, as Cassidy Cash of That Shakespeare Life podcast points out in her discussion with James Knapp, Hans Holbein, the artist of the woodcut series The Dance of Death, is the same artist who painted Henry VIII's infamous portrait currently on display in the Walker Art Gallery in Liverpool. If Holbein was painting for the literal king, why are his woodcuts, and other woodcuts of the time, not as popular? According to Knapp, unlike the single copy of the painting or drawing, woodcuts are reproducible, which inherently reduces their value. 
Now, if you want to see these woodcuts in real life, many major Western museums have woodcut print exhibits. For example, the British Museum and the Art Institute of Chicago have great early modern print exhibitions displaying single sheet print or artistic print. In addition to single sheet print, museums like the British Library and the Folger Shakespeare Library contain copies of books with woodcuts that would have likely been seen by early modern Londoners, including Shakespeare. You'll know if an illustration is a woodcut because the page will contain an imprint from the block. But if you can't travel to a museum with woodcut exhibits, that's all right. There are many facsimile copies of woodcuts online through educational and cultural institutions. We'll link some in the episode description. Whether you're interested in history, politics, court life, demonology, gossip, or weird little guys, trust us. There are so many weird little half-man, half-animal guys in early modern woodcuts. This print medium is expansive, fascinating, and offers a valuable window into early modern life. And that's Woodcuts in Early Modern England. Thank you for listening to this episode. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash ShakespeareAnyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, ShakespeareAnyone.com, follow us on Instagram at ShakespeareAnyonePod, or Twitter at ShakespeareAnyone. For Twitter, that's ShakespeareAny and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From King Lear, Act 2, Scene 2, said by Lear. Tis strange that they should so depart from home and not send back my messenger.